Good morning. I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 22. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. I'm going to go ahead and read verses 15 to 19. Genesis chapter 22, verses 15 to 19. Holy Scripture says, And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. This is God's Word, and it is for our good. Let's pray. Father, uh, we, we have need of instruction, encouragement, and transformation, and we pray that you would do those very things through this Word that you have given to us. We just pray that your Holy Spirit would come and shine the light of your truth upon our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven. That means there was a first time. And of course, that, that takes us back to the uh, account that we looked at last week in, in verses 1 to 14, where God tested Abraham and told him to take his only and beloved son Isaac up to Mount Moriah and to sacrifice him there as a burnt offering. And Abraham was diligent to obey the Lord's instruction. And at that very moment when he was ready to slay his son, if you look at verse 11 in chapter 22, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven, that's that's the first time, and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. So now, just a few verses later, after Abraham has uh, offered the ram as a burnt offering in Isaac's place and named the place the Lord will provide, then the angel of the Lord comes to Uh, calls to Abraham a second time. Remember that the angel of the Lord is very closely associated with the Lord himself and speaks on the Lord's behalf. And this angel of the Lord is, is bringing to Abraham a declaration from the Lord as we see in verses 16 to 18. What, what is the declaration? Well, the, the, the declaration is, is that 
the Lord is telling Abraham that he has sworn, this is a solemn oath, he has solemnly pledged to, he's, he, he's reaffirming his promises to Abraham, and he's making it clear that, the Lord's making it clear that he is going to perform his promises toward Abraham. And the occasion for this particular reaffirmation of the covenant and for making it clear to Abraham that the Lord is going to fulfill his promises to Abraham is on account of Abraham's obedience. If you look at the, at, if you look at the end of, of, of verse 16 and the end of verse 18, it's kind of like, a, it's kind of like the two pieces of, of bread on a sandwich, okay? Um, end of verse 16, because you have done this and have not withheld your, your, your son, your only son, okay? And then the other piece of bread at the bottom, verse 18, end of verse 18, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham's obedience, specifically his, his not withholding his only son, but him, his willingness to offer him up as a sacrifice in obedience to the Lord's instruction, that's, that's, that's bracketing the Lord's solemn declaration that he is most certainly going to fulfill his promises to Abraham, and he's going to fulfill them because Abraham obeyed his voice. In between the two pieces of bread is the substance of the promises that the Lord is going to fulfill. And basically what you have here is, is the, the three of the four promises that the Lord highlights in verses uh, 17 and 18 are reaffirmations of earlier promises that were made in the book of Genesis. And then a fourth promise is kind of a represents a further development and elaboration upon the earlier promises. So let's just, so let's just walk through them, uh, beginning in verse 17. The first promise, I will surely bless you. Uh, the the, the he Hebrew text literally says, blessing, I will bless you. The, 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 the double reference to, to blessing makes it emphatic. I will surely bless you, or I will most certainly bless you. And this harkens back to, uh, to that one of those first promises that God made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verse 2. When, uh, when the Lord said, I will bless you and make your name great. So, uh, before, before Abraham's climactic in obedience in chapter 22, the, the, the promise was, I will bless you. And now after that obedience, it's, I will surely bless you. The, the second promise in verse uh, 17 is I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. Here again, the Hebrew text literally says, multiplying, I will multiply you. Again, the double reference to multiply makes it emphatic. I will surely multiply your offspring or I will greatly multiply your offspring. And this harken back, harkens back to uh, earlier promises in chapter 13, verse 16, the Lord had promised Abraham, 
I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth. Dust of the earth is similar to sand on the seashore. And then in, uh, in chapter 15, verse 5, uh, the Lord invited Abraham to look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. And then he said, so shall your offspring be. And here again we see the reference to Abraham's offspring are going to be multiplied as the stars of heaven. Innumerable offspring as a result of Abraham's obedience. The third promise, still in verse 17, is, and your offspring shall possess the gate of of his enemies. Now this, this promise in a sense, is a, is a new promise. It represents a, a further development and elaboration of earlier promises that God had made, but it's consistent with the earlier promises. For example, in that first set of promises in chapter 12, uh, verse 3, uh, the Lord said to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse And so the implication there is that Abraham, and by extension his descendants, uh, they're they're going to have enemies. But Abraham and his descendants are going to have the upper hand because they're going to be blessed, but their enemies, those who dishonor them, are going to be cursed. And um, and also we, we we had an example of the Lord uh, giving victory to Abraham over his enemies in chapter 14 when Abraham uh, conducted a a military operation in order to rescue his nephew Lot who had been taken as a prisoner of war by the Mesopotamian kings and after the battle was done Melchizedek, the king of Salem uh, said this in Genesis chapter 14 verse 20 Blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And so that the, the, the Lord giving Abraham's enemies into his hand, it's kind of a preview of the fact that, that Abraham's offspring will possess the gate of his enemies. If you, if you possess the gate of your enemies, then you are the, you are the victor. You are the ruler. You have uh, compromised, neutralized the enemy's defense, and now you control who and what goes in and who and what goes out. You are in the position of ruler. The fourth promise, this takes us now to verse 18, the fourth promise is, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Of course, the The initial promise, again in in chapter 12, at the end of verse 3, was, and in you, speaking to Abraham, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So that, that was a promise that in Abraham himself all the families of the earth would be blessed. But as we're reading along through chapters 12 to 22, we're understanding that there's a trajectory where it's not just about Abraham, but it's about his offspring. In, in uh, chapter 17, 
verse 7, the Lord said to Abraham, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And then in verse 19 of chapter 17, God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. So the, the initial promise to Abraham in 12.3, it's moving forward into the next generation, into Isaac, and then, of course, to Jacob, and ultimately to the Messiah. So the... All of these promises the Lord is most certainly going to perform toward Abraham because Abraham walked in obedience to the Lord. Uh, the, the, the passage ends uh, simply by telling us that Ab- Abraham made his way back home. At the end of chapter uh, 21, he was, he, was, uh, he was living in Beersheba, and to Beersheba he returns after the angel was done speaking with him. Now, I, wanna, I really want to walk through some, uh, some application here. Uh, let me find my place. <clears throat> there's really, there's, there's, a, there's a couple lessons, and actually uh, one of the lessons I'm actually going to tackle next week, Lord, Lord willing, we, we, need, we need to really think about the significance of the fact that there's an emphasis here on Abraham's offspring. His offspring are going to be multiplied. His offspring is going to possess the gate of his enemies. His offspring are going to be a vehicle of blessing to all the nations of the earth. And that, that ultimately points forward to what the Lord accomplishes through, uh, through the Messiah. So, I want to look at that next week, okay? But um, this week, and by the way, when you, when, you see, when you see me setting my Bible down here, I'm not setting aside the Word, um, just setting aside my physical copy of the Bible uh, to make space for my, <laughs> what I have written down here, which is full of Bible. Um, uh, so, uh, but the lesson I want to focus on this morning it has to do with the necessity and significance of obedience, something that is often ne- neglected in the uh, American evangelical church. I presented the Lord's declaration in verses 16 to 18 in a matter-of-fact fashion, but it raises a very important question for us. Many people assume that God's earlier promises to Abraham in chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 15, chapter 17. I mean, the Lord is continually making promises to Abraham. Many people assume that these earlier promises are unconditional. Many people assume that God's earlier promises to Abraham are not in any way conditioned on anything that Abraham does or fails to do. But then we come to Genesis chapter 22 and an honest reading of verses 16 to 18 challenges that assumption. According to Genesis chapter 22, God's promises to Abraham are conditioned on Abraham's response. Abraham's obedience meant walking into the fulfillment of 
God's promises with the implication that if Abraham had disobeyed the Lord's voice, his disobedience would have meant the forfeiture of his claim on God's promise. So as students of the Bible who need to understand the ways of the Lord so that we would walk in those ways, we really need to think through how, how God's earlier promises to Abraham relate to what we learn in chapter 22, that the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham are conditioned on Abraham's obedience. And, and I'll just mention at the outset that this, uh, the, 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 apparent, the apparent conditionality of God's promises in chapter 22 might challenge some of your assumptions about how God's promises work. But the truth revealed in Genesis chapter 22 is taught and expressed in various ways throughout the entire Bible. And so that's, what I, that's where I want to start. I want to just give you some examples um, that hopefully will highlight the fact that this is a prominent scriptural theme. Uh, for our first example, remember God's promise to Noah in Genesis chapter 6. I will establish my covenant with you with someone who, who was already blameless and living righteously and was in right relationship with the Father. That promise was made before the flood, and then after the flood in Genesis chapters 8 and 9, God actually established His covenant with Noah, but what transpired in between? Noah's obedience, right? Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him, Genesis 6.22 and 7.5, in building the ark and making preparations. If Noah hadn't built the ark, he would have perished in the flood, not so much because there wasn't an ark, but because of his disobedience. For our second example, I want you to think uh, about the big picture of what we're learning about the life of Abraham. God's initial promises to Abraham in chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, were preceded by a command. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. By obeying this initial command, Abraham began to walk into the fulfillment of God's promises. God's promise to give Abraham and Abraham's offspring the land of Canaan was only given to Abraham after he had arrived in the land of Canaan, after he had, after he had obeyed the Lord. If, if, if Abraham had never left Ur in the first place, he, he would have remained a stranger to the promises of God. For our third example, when the Lord established his covenant with the children of Israel, he said, Now therefore, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6. And this goes right along with the promise of covenant blessing, which I read uh, a couple weeks ago from Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 1 to 13, um, when I was explaining how Abimelech would have known that God was with Abraham. That impressive catalog of promised blessings began with, 
in Deuteronomy 28.1, and if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. Psalm 103 celebrates that the Lord's favor rests on those who, like Abraham, fear the Lord and obey him. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. Psalm 103, verses 17 and 18. Similarly, the good news of forgiveness spoken by the Lord through the prophet Isaiah is promised to those who repent and obey. Isaiah chapter 1, verses 16 to 20 says, Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. When a preacher proclaims forgiveness apart from repentance, he is preaching a distorted gospel. When a preacher proclaims forgiveness apart from repentance, he is basically telling people that they can remain in their sin and still be forgiven. They can cling to their idols and still be forgiven. They can continue to walk in disobedience and still be forgiven. But that is a false gospel. The true gospel demands a transfer of allegiance from our idols to the living God. When the true gospel came to the folks in Thessalonica, it came in power and powerfully transformed their hearts and lives. The Apostle Paul wrote, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. So, Genesis, Exodus, Deuteronomy, the Psalms, Isaiah, are unified in the teaching that the experiential fulfillment of God's promises belong to the obedient, whereas the disobedient forfeit any claim uh, uh, to God's promises. Jesus who came to fulfill the law and the prophets, teaches the same principle. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Matthew 5, 5, quoting Psalm 37, 11. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Matthew 5, 8. According to the Apostle John, everyone who has this confident expectation of seeing the Lord purifies himself. 1 John 3, 3. Back to the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs, theirs is the kingdom of heaven, Matthew 5.10. Those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake are the ones who are seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, Matthew 6.33. Jesus went on to say 
that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven, Matthew 5.20. In the context of the Sermon on the Mount, the superior righteousness that Jesus is talking about is practical righteousness that results from a transformed heart, which is far superior to the showmaking, the showmanship of external righteousness that was characteristic of the Pharisees. The Sermon on the Mount concludes by telling us that everyone who hears these words of mine and does them, Matthew 7, 24, will stand firm amid the battering storms, whereas everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them, Matthew 7, 26, will come to utter ruin. As I have said many times before and plan to say until I lose my voice, Obedience is the pathway that leads to future and incomparable glory, but disobedience is the pathway that leads to future and catastrophic ruin. Now, similar scriptures could be shared for hours, but this sampling from different parts of the Bible makes the matter clear. God's promises come to fruition in those who walk in obedience to him, whereas those who walk in disobedience forfeit their share in God's promises. Now, to, uh, one little qualification here. I don't want anyone to think when I'm, when I'm emphasizing obedience, I'm, I'm not operating in the illusion that we can attain a, a perfect obedience or a sinless perfection. Numerous passages make it clear that even those who have been redeemed, just, just, like, just like Abraham, uh, still are tempted to sin, and sometimes we fall into sin, but nevertheless, the, the, the obedience of the redeemed is, is a real obedience, something that the Lord works into our lives and that we grow in and mature in over the course of our walk with God. Now, if you've been around South Paris Baptist Church for a while, then what, I, then what, I'm, what I'm saying right now will come as no surprise because I'm apt to say that this, these sort of, sorts of things. Um, for many years, I have been deeply troubled by the cheap grace of modern evangelicalism in which people who remain in their sin are nevertheless assured that their sins are forgiven because they supposedly believe in Jesus even though they aren't following Him and aren't putting His words into practice and aren't striving after holiness, purity, and righteousness. The preachers of cheap grace will throw around the word unconditional, but where do they get this concept from and how do they allow it to cancel out the clear teaching of Scripture? They proclaim peace, peace, where there is no peace. They proclaim peace, peace to those who are at peace with their sin, something that a preacher should never do. That said, once the necessity of obedience is established, we, we, we still have some very important work to do in terms of understanding how obedience fits into the overall Christian life. Just as it is wrong to make obedience optional, it is also wrong to speak about the necessity of obedience in the wrong way. For example, mere external obedience, going through the motions and managing your, your, managing your observable, observable behavior, that's not walking in biblical obedience. Further, anxious obedience, walking on eggshells and always being fearful that you're about to lose God's favor, that is not biblical obedience. Biblical obedience is neither the obedience of managing appearances nor the obedience of managing angst. 
Also, self-trusting obedience, trusting yourself to win God's approval by doing the right thing, that's not biblical obedience. Noah's obedience in building the ark was not a strategy for winning God's favor. Noah had God's favor before he received the instruction to build the ark. Noah was righteous before he received that instruction. Noah's obedience in building the ark demonstrated the righteousness that he already had. For it is the nature of walking rightly before God to do what he says. So when I proclaim the necessity of obedience, you have to get counterfeit obedience out of your head. If when I'm up here emphasizing obedience, you feel like this this weight, this burden, this guilt, this now you've got you've to you've do the next thing, you've got to do it quickly because you've got to keep God's favor. If, if, like if that's what's happening to you right now, then when I say obedience, you're actually, you have in your heart and mind a picture of counterfeit obedience because that's not true obedience. True obedience is not burdensome as 1 John chapter 5 tells us. Biblical obedience is profoundly good and satisfying and necessary as part of the Christian life. And so I'm just going to, with reference to Abraham's life, I just want to attempt to explain biblical obedience in three, three steps, okay? Step number one, trusting the Lord is at the root of a believer's right relationship with the Lord. The proper response to the Lord's gracious promises is to believe Him. We learned this lesson back in Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 to 6. The Lord promised Abraham that he would have a son and that his offspring would be as numerous as the stars of heaven. And Genesis 15, 6 tells us that Abraham believed the Lord and the Lord counted it to Abraham as righteousness. The Apostle Paul draws upon Genesis 15, 6 in Romans chapter 4 and in Galatians chapter 3. Paul drives home the lesson in Galatians 3 that God's favor and God's presence with us and life-giving work toward us is received by faith. Let me read it. Galatians 3, 1 to 9. Oh, foolish Galatians. Who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Understand then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. A right and healthy relationship with the Lord is not achieved by acts of obedience. 
Instead, a right and healthy relationship with the Lord is received by trusting the Lord's promise, banking on the Lord's grace, being persuaded that the Lord's words are trustworthy and good, by relying on the crucified Christ who redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. You cannot obey your way out of the curse that is upon you for your past acts of disobedience, which are many, and so are mine. You cannot obey your way into the forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with God. Instead, you must hear the good news of Christ's perfect obedience, perfect sacrifice, perfect victory, and hearing it, you must trust Him and entrust your heart to His mercy. Therefore, Paul writes in Romans 5, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Romans 5, verses 1 and 2. Trusting the Lord is at the root of of a believer's right relationship with the Lord. Now let's go to step number two. A believer's right relationship with the Lord, which the believer has by faith, necessarily expresses itself in obedience. By faith, we obey God's Word, and our faith-fueled, right, our faith-fueled obedience doesn't make us righteous, but it demonstrates the righteousness that we already have. True faith is a living faith, a lively faith that believes God's promises and lives in the good of those promises. If you truly believe and grasp that the Holy One has forgiven your sin and called you into fellowship with Himself, then you begin to live in the light of this reality. You begin to take steps of obedience and to live unto the Lord. The hall of faith, Hebrews 11, emphasizes the truth that those who have faith in God actually do what He tells them to do. Hebrews chapter 11 isn't praising invisible faith. It's praising faith made visible through obedience, right? By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, Hebrews 11.8. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, Hebrews 11.9. By faith, when he was tested, he, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, Hebrews 11.17. Those who trust the Lord follow him as he leads, as he leads them in paths of righteousness. Although we receive salvation by faith alone apart from works, true faith never remains alone but is accompanied by works. Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead, James 2.17, and a dead faith never saved anyone. In fact, one of the most instructive passages on the relationship between Abraham's faith and Abraham's obedience is found in James chapter 2 a passage that has baffled some, but let's read it. James chapter 2, verses 18 to 24. <clears throat> but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. It's not, and he's not, he's not really commending that. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. 
You believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works, and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone, James 2, verses 18 to 24. Paul's statement that we are justified by faith apart from works in Romans 3.28, and James' statement that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone, James 2.24, has baffled some readers of the Bible. But there is no need to be baffled. Paul and James are actually talking about different things. Paul is saying that the foundation of our right relationship with the Lord is the Lord, our faith in the Lord. We're to be confident in the Lord. We're not to to place confidence in anything that we do or attempt to do. But James is addressing a different issue. James is saying that true faith is not merely a theoretical and intellectual affirmation that certain things are true. True faith is a living reality that bears tangible fruit. The word that is translated justified in James chapter 2 can be used in more than one way, and this is actually really important. It can mean declared righteous, which is how Paul often uses the term. We are declared to be righteous. We are accounted righteous. We are reckoned righteous by faith alone, in Jesus alone, apart from any works that we might do. But this word justified, it can also mean vindicated or shown to be righteous. I think, for example, when Jesus said that wisdom wisdom is justified by her deeds, wisdom is vindicated, wisdom is shown to be wisdom, shown to be right by wisdom's fruit. Now, we know that Abraham was declared righteous in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, and James affirms this in James 2, verse 23. But Abraham was shown to be righteous by obedience. I think, that's the, I think that's probably the sense here. Was not Abraham our faith shown to be righteous by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. You see that a person is shown to be righteous by works and not by faith alone which harkens back to what he said earlier in verse 18. Show me your faith apart from your works. No, 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 no. I will show you my faith by my works. Okay? So Abraham was declared righteous by faith alone, but he was shown to be righteous. That is, he was shown to be a man in right relationship with the Lord by his acts of obedience. Faith activates and generates works. Invisible faith comes to full expression in the form of visible fruit, and visible fruit shows that the tree is alive. Visible fruit shows that the fruit bearer is a man of faith who lives in right relationship with the Father. So, a believer's right relationship with the Lord expresses itself in obedience. That was step two. Now step number three. Practical obedience, which is the fruit of faith and the visible demonstration that we are rightly related to the Lord, is the appointed pathway 
that leads us into the experiential fulfillment of God's blessing. I mean, that's what we saw in Gen- that's what we see in Genesis 22. A- Abraham's obedience from the from the beginning, the beginning of his obedience when he left Ur of the Chaldeans all the way through to his offering up his son Isaac on the altar. That obedience was he was walking into the fulfillment of God's blessing. And we can think about that in terms of the children of Israel going into the land of Canaan, or, or we believers looking forward to the ultimate promised land, the new heaven and the new earth. Second uh, Peter chapter 3, verses 11 to 14, exhorts believers to live holy and godly lives in anticipation of what God has promised. Second Peter 3.13 says, But according to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And Peter says, If that's what we're waiting for, then we should be diligent to live blameless lives. Hebrews chapters 3 and 4 reminds us that although the children of Israel had the promises of God, these promises did not benefit them because they did not truly believe them. Therefore, because of their unbelief and consequent disobedience, they failed to enter God's rest. They died in the wilderness and never made it into the promised land. The author of Hebrews urges those who profess to be Christians to hold fast our confidence, Hebrews 3.6, to strive to enter God's rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience, Hebrews 4.11, and to not be sluggish but to be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises, Hebrews 6.12. He says, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised, Hebrews 10, 36. Then Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And then Hebrews 12, 14, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And he's talking about practical holiness, practical peacemaking. No anxiety, no angst, no insecurity, but a deep and delightful persuasion that this is the way, walk ye in it. What is the way? Patient endurance, principled obedience, always pursuing the Lord's way, eagerly waiting for His return. Practical obedience is the pilgrim's privileged pathway to the holy city. Faith is at the root of a right relationship with the Lord. True faith expresses itself in obedience, and faith-fueled obedience is the pathway that leads us into the promised blessings. Now, from the Lord's perspective, flip back to Genesis 18. From the Lord's perspective, all of this is simply His seamless plan. I broke it down into steps so you can see how the parts relate. But this is a seamless plan for His redeemed people to inherit the glorious future of His incomparably good promises through obedience. This divine agenda is tucked away in a seemingly unrelated passage. When the Lord decided to tell Abraham 
about the impending judgment that he was about to bring on Sodom and Gomorrah, he decided to tell Abraham because he, he had appointed Abraham to become a great nation and, and to become a means of blessing to the whole world. And he was like, Abraham needs to learn this lesson about the importance of righteousness. And, and the Lord made this comment in Genesis chapter 18, verse 19. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. You see that? Not apart from obedience, but through obedience, we come into the inheritance. In other words, obedience, keeping the Lord's way and doing righteousness, is part of the Lord's plan to get the reality of his promises to his people. And if you belong to the Lord, he is totally committed to empowering you on the path of obedience okay what does the lord do for the people that he redeems he gives them a new heart which has a disposition to cherish and keep god's instruction ezekiel 36 verse 26 he puts his he puts in his people his holy spirit who leads us into practical obedience ezekiel 36 verse 27 he also puts in his people's hearts the fear of God that they may not turn from him, Jeremiah 32, verse 40. Having begun a good work in his people, he is pledged to see it through to the very end. He will not forsake the work of his hands, and he works in us both to will and to do his good pleasure, Philippians 1, 6, and 2, 13. So if you are here this morning, this is supposed to be an encouragement to you. If you are here this morning, and you know that the Lord has set you on the path of heartfelt obedience, and you know that you actually have a freeing disposition to follow the Lord, and you know that He continues to sustain you and sanctify you on the path of obedience, then you ought to be encouraged. The Lord commends His faithful and obedient servants, and He bids you to press on and bear fruit until the very end. On the other hand, if you chafe at biblical obedience because it rubs you the wrong way, or if you find yourself to be a stranger to the Lord's transforming work at the heart level, or if you simply have no idea what I'm talking about, I urge you to take heed and seek the Lord. Maybe, maybe you're not stuck in the sin of immorality and unruliness. Maybe you're stuck in the sin of counterfeit obedience, or Maybe you're stuck in the sin of being paralyzed by fear of falling into counterfeit obedience. That's not freedom. That's stuck. So friends, it's time to wake up and breathe the fresh air. Christ the Lord is risen from the dead and He is able to lead you into genuine and pleasant obedience. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Ephesians 5, 14. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would protect our hearts and minds from error, because there are dozens of ways to get this wrong.
I pray that you would help each and every one of us to be diligent in searching and understanding the scriptures and letting your words and promises hold sway in our hearts. I pray that your Holy Spirit would empower us and strengthen us on the path of obedience and that it would be a a humble, gentle, cheerful obedience that is pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.